The opinions expressed by the guests and contributors of this podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of Cornell University or its employees. Welcome to another episode of the Inclusive Excellence Podcast. Today, we'll be interviewing our DEI counterparts at Wild Cornell Medicine in New York City, Jamal Lopez and Finesse George. We asked them about their journey and experience spearheading DEI initiatives at the Wild Cornell campus while also talking about DEI more broadly. What are our hopes and dreams in doing this work and what we ultimately wish to see in the evolution of DEI? My name is Anthony Sis. My name is Toral Patel. And you are listening to the Inclusive Excellence Podcast. Just as a heads up, we are still recording remotely and so you may hear some background noise during this interview. We have two amazing guests today. Would you like to introduce yourselves, Jamal and Finesse? Tell us a little bit about yourself, the pronouns that you use, and how long you've been at Cornell. Sure. My name is Jamal Lopez. I have been at Wild Cornell Medicine for seven years. My title currently is the Senior Director of Institutional Equity, and the pronouns that I use are he, him, and his. Hey, Anthony and Toro. My name is Finesse, she, her, hers. I am the diversity, inclusion, and employee engagement manager, also in the Office of Institutional Equity. And I've been at Wild Cornell for five and a half years. Perfect. Welcome. Welcome to the podcast. Before we get started with our conversation, we like to start every podcast with a question of the day. And it's a question that only one of us knows, and we all take turns answering it. So, Anthony, do you have our question of the day today? Yes. So my question, well, our question of the day is really just thinking about in light of the work that you all do, that we also do here at Cornell, but in the Ithaca campus and you all at Wild Cornell, what is exciting for you in this moment as more organizations, more companies are really bringing diversity, equity and inclusion initiatives and effort to light? What is exciting for you in this moment? So I'll start. I, I think for me, it's the opportunity to affect real change. You know, for the first time in my career, I feel like around topics of diversity, equity, and inclusion, like people are really listening for the first time. It's been something that I've been talking about for a while, and I would get, you know, yeah, we get it, we understand, you know, we agree, but there would never be any action to follow. But now for the first time, there's action to follow, and Finesse and I are part of that action, and actually we're guiding a lot of the actions along with other members of the Wild Medicine community, like Dr. Saeed Ibrahim and his team. Yeah, and I have to piggyback off of that because there's been a, an overall awakening when it comes to people realizing the importance of diversity and inclusion. And it's a really interesting time because you don't just have like D&I professionals talking about the importance of diversity. You now have CEOs talking about diversity and inclusion. You have CEOs putting out statements, CEOs withdrawing their support from certain states that don't support diversity and inclusion. And now we have an opportunity to really create change, similar to what Jamal said. Now we have, as DNI professionals, have a seat at the table that I don't think we've had before. And people are starting to realize the importance of the work we're doing. So I'm excited because there's more room for conversation now. I think people are just starting to get comfortable with statements like Black Lives Matter and talking about the AAPI community and 
a more open way. So lots of great opportunities for community and coalition building and change, lots of good stuff all around. I agree. I agree with both of you. And I think I would add that just realizing the value that these conversations and the actions that are coming from these conversations, the value that they have on the organizational level, right? I think people are finally seeing it when people, individuals, employees, staff can bring their authentic self to work. What does that look like and how it benefits each organization and brings the, the organizations to a whole new level. And so I think we're finally starting to see that kind of come to fruition. I'll say what excites me and this is a very interesting take on this exciting piece, but I just remember like a year ago before the pandemic started and well, right when the pandemic started actually, and there was a lot of conversation around the importance of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I kind of felt like not specifically at Cornell, but among other organizations and companies that a lot of this work kind of was put on the back burner. And it wasn't until the summer with the incidents of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, that then this conversation, particularly around equity and inclusion, as well as diversity, started coming to the forefront. My only critique on that response is just, it shouldn't be at the expense of people's bodies, especially not black and brown bodies, that organizations and companies should care about this work. And so to answer this question around what excites me, it's that I'm hoping in terms of what the future and the outlook of this work looks like is that this shouldn't come at the cost of anybody's lives, right? Whether you're black, brown, queer, disabled. So I think just moving forward, that's what excites me about this work is that now it's coming to the forefront as something that actually people should invest money in and that people should care about beyond the business value or beyond even just the kind of ethical piece around why people should care about other people's lived experiences and identities. So that's what excites me. And I just hope that it doesn't continue to happen at the cost of other people losing their lives. Yeah, it's the concept of moving from reactive to hopefully proactive, right? And so we're not reacting to what's happening within the country or another death or another incident, but that we're actually, as organizations, are going to be proactive in the approaches that we take and the initiatives that we move forward. I agree with both of you. The tide is changing and people are starting to realize the importance of diversity and inclusion and not just like diversity and inclusion in terms of a, a theory or an idea or the right thing to do. But now you see CEOs and businesses actually caring about diversity and inclusion. So DNI is not just a nice thing to do or a nice thing to have as a part of your organization. It's become an integral business function. Unfortunately, at the cost of people like George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery, may they rest in power. But I think it's good change. You know, and that's what excites me, the fact that our senior leaders are seeing the importance of this work and knowing that diversity has a place in the workplace. Right? It's not just talking about like diversity and inclusion, but actually making change through diversity and inclusion in our workplaces. 100%. Thank you. Thank you all for answering that question of the day. Jamal Finesse, we've worked collaboratively, I would say, over the past year in terms of learning each other's programs, offering services that we provide to the Cornell community, particularly within staff and faculty. And so I'm just curious to kind of launch this conversation, right? You all are essentially our DEI equivalents at Wild Cornell. You all are doing some really amazing work. And so just to launch this conversation, what are some of the things that you've noticed 
even from our conversations outside of this recording, right, around what DEI work looks like at Wild Cornell and particularly thinking about its location, right? You all are in New York City, very diverse, very vibrant community and thinking about the Ithaca campus. What do you think are some of the differences that you've noted even in our conversations? So I think one of the main differences is the climate that we have at Cornell. We have this kind of tri-institutional concept you know, where we work with NYP and Columbia, and sometimes the politics can be confusing. So I think that that's one of the main challenges that I've experienced and that I'm trying to constantly kind of overcome. Yeah, definitely the climate here. It's interesting because we have faculty that don't just teach, but also deal with patients. And I've heard from several faculty members that they don't know how to deal with racism and racial trauma, because sometimes the attacks come from patients. And so having that dynamic of not just being an academic institution, but also an institution that is charged, a healthcare institution that's charged with taking care of the larger community and knowing that you could still be under attack in your own workplace, I think is an interesting dynamic and an added layer of complexity that we tend to have here. But I'd love to hear from the both of you, you know, kind of being a part of the Ithaca community, do you feel like it's a more close-knit community because you're, you know, away from the city and kind of a Cornell town, so to speak? I think it's similar. I think it just looks different, particularly what we encounter a lot with the work that we do. So we don't really interact too much with faculty. Faculty, I think, are an extension of the work that we do sometimes, but they're not our like target audience. And so when I think about Cornell staff at the Ithaca campus, it's just very siloed. So yes, as a collective, we work at Cornell, including Cornell Tech and some other campuses across New York State. But I think the biggest challenge sometimes is that when it comes to culture, it varies by department and by unit. So as a collective, right, we can be advancing diversity, equity, and inclusion. But what this looks like in practice in certain areas across the university, it can be very different and it can be really challenging to address some of those specifics within certain parts of the campus. I don't think it's different to what you all were saying. I think it just looks different in terms of the fact that you know, we're not necessarily interacting with other healthcare institutions. It's really more internally with just different departments and units. And how do we come to really address some of the needs around diversity, equity, and inclusion that need to be addressed in some parts of campus? And to your point, Finesse, we do have some enterprise units in the Ithaca campus as well. So that you might be aware there is the animal hospital there. There is a diagnostic facility as well as other enterprise units. So they experience similar situations because they also serve clients who are outside of the Cornell community. And also to your point, a big portion of our staff come from the local area. So there is kind of that small, that close knit feeling, you know, because people tend to have grown up with each other, they do know each other, but that also doesn't make us very diverse as a larger population because of our recruiting area. And if I can add real quickly, I think, you know, with us, that's one thing that's different is this office that Finesse and I are part of is relatively new. It was just created in July of last year in response to the racial tensions that we all experienced, right? So one of the first things that I had to do was go on this kind of like tour into different departments, meeting with senior leadership, because it was a trust issue. 
You know, whenever you have a brand new office that's created dealing with diversity, equity, and inclusion amongst faculty members, they don't know, you know, what you're going to do. Are you coming on board to kind of like fire people or to, you know, hold people uncomfortably accountable in ways that they don't feel comfortable with? So I had to go out and meet with these senior people and kind of convince them that, hey, I'm here to be a partner, to advance the work, not so much to like slap your hand or to punish you for things. So that was another, you know, complexity that Finesse and I were dealing with and that we still kind of deal with. But the trust we found is slowly building. So, yeah, we're happy about that. Yeah. So, Jamal, can you tell us a little bit more about that? So what kinds of things have you done to kind of build that trust? So I can't take credit for a lot of it. A lot of it is through Finesse's work, right? You know, in the midst of all of the social and racial tension that we saw last year, People in our community, they wanted answers. They wanted to allow their voices to be heard. They were looking for some kind of outlet to kind of like release the tension. So one of the things that we did was Vanessa went out and she had these difficult conversations around anti-blackness and race and power and the equity and those things in various departments. And they were very, very well received. You know, she can tell you sometimes people cried, sometimes people laughed, but it was, it was an opportunity for people to be heard in ways that people had never heard them before. We've also revamped our investigations strategy. We've revised our policy. So now we have two Title IX investigators slash coordinators who do an excellent job at really investigating these allegations. And then we're going into the departments. We have this dotted line report to the dean so that he can understand some of the issues that come up and some of the behaviors that are problematic. And we can really hold people's feet to the fire if and when they say or do something that's contrary to our policy. So that's just the beginning of some of the things that we're doing. But I'm sure Finesse can even shed even more light on a lot of the other programs that we have planned. That's a lot. Definitely kudos to y'all for putting that together. I mean, not even a year, right? You said July 2020 was when the office was formally formed, right? So I think just those alone, those accomplishments alone, I think is really huge. I commend y'all in, in terms of really doing that hard work to get that started over there. Thank you. Finesse, I don't know if you wanted to add anything to what Jamal said. No, I think he summed it up quite nicely. The summer was really hectic for us, to say the least, because we were forming a new office. And note, the name of our office is the Office of Institutional Equity. And so Mm -hmm. we were charged with taking a different approach to the diversity and inclusion efforts that we already had at Wild Cornell. I think traditional diversity and inclusion work focuses on creating safe spaces, which is very important and focuses a lot on conversations. And the Office of Institutional Equity has had the opportunity to not just have those conversations, but also to teach our leaders and also to embed and infuse equitable practices into all of our business areas. And that's the goal, right? That's Mm -hmm. that's the mission and I think the vision of our office but it does start with these conversations. And as Jamal mentioned before, you know, he kind of did a, a roadshow talking to all of the senior leaders. And I had to go out to departments and talk about race and injustice and the historical context of what's going on today. 
And it was extremely difficult for me as a woman of color to kind of facilitate those conversations to be comforter in chief while also comforting <laughs> myself. Right? Yeah. It was difficult to, to kind of manage that responsibility at first. But as I continued to have those conversations, we had over 40 sessions with different departments across the institution. I realized the importance of this work, the work that we're doing. It really changed my perspective on diversity and inclusion. Just hearing people's stories. Yes, some people cried, but some people also emailed me and said, this is the most important meeting I've ever had in my career at Wild Cornell. So that's wow. also really gratifying to hear that people are receptive to what we're doing and they trust us to really create change. So I want to elaborate a little bit on what you shared, which I think is really important that everyone in this space is a person of color. And I think it would be remiss for us as DEI professionals and people who also do this work, but also taking into account our own personal identities and lived experiences to not have a moment to reflect on the impact that doing this work has on us. And so I think, Finesse, you summed it up really nicely. But I, I also want to invite you, if you want to elaborate a little bit more on that, and also invite it for Toral and Jamal to also contribute to that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when I first started these sessions on race and social injustice and meaningful change, as we titled it, I had to kind of grapple with what was going on with George Floyd at the time. You know, it was still relatively fresh. And I had to kind of take a step back for a second and really think about, do I have the capacity to have these conversations? Because I was finding that I was extremely exhausted after my first few sessions, but that's because people had an opportunity to share for the first time in their many years at Cornell. People had opportunities and spaces that they didn't have. And so they were, you know, pouring out emotions and, and all of these things. And it was a lot for me to kind of take in. So after, I want to say my first two or three sessions, I, I kind of took a step back. and I was like, wait a minute, am I okay? And in a lot of these conversations that I have on a regular basis, I'm constantly thinking, do I have the capacity to handle this? Because one of the things that I think is pretty common amongst DNI professionals is that we feel like we need to be there for other people, right? We have a strong sense of mm -hmm. empathy. And on top of having a sense of empathy, but having your own lived experiences, it can be difficult to navigate those spaces and still kind of show up for other people. Because the, the complexity is that you want to be able to be authentic when you're speaking about these very important topics, but you also have to kind of stay composed and support other people, right? People can't see you kind of like crying or breaking down when you're supposed to be talking about very important topics, right? They want to feel like they have a safe space. And part of that is also keeping your own composure. So it's, it's a challenge, but it's, it also allowed me to be extremely authentic when I am speaking to people about these issues, because I can draw from my own personal experiences. If I can add to that, I had to change my view of being the only, right? And what, what do I mean by that, right? So growing up, you know, my background is not one of privilege. My background is one I grew up poor, single parent household. My mom remarried later on. You know, I've taken several jobs as like police officer. I was a social worker, you know, worked on budgets, a lot of different jobs. And frequently in those roles, I was often the only, the only black guy in the room, the only black guy at the conference, the only. And I used to hate that. Like I used to, it just used to cause me so much stress. But now I realize that the work requires me to be the only. And, and people who are committed to the work, I would argue that you should be comfortable with it. 
and unapologetically be the only, right? You know, I, I go into meetings now and I'm the only black male that might be there. And I'm like, that's right. I'm here and I, I bring value. I have a voice. You know, that's there are right. things that I need to say and that I need to be heard. Uh, so get comfortable with me being the only, right? So it, it was a change in my mindset. Now, I would encourage people who are in the field and who are thinking about joining the field to be brave in being that only because there's power in it. Yeah, and maybe almost change it to I'm the first, right? Yeah. And there, there's others that will follow. And so to kind of finesse and Jamal, your point, and so I think both of you know that I receive and manage all of the bias reports that involve faculty and staff on campus. And so... This is similar to kind of finesse what you were saying is that this kind of work can get exhausting because we'll go through the the bias reports and, you know, I'll, I'll get so many within a week and I'll we'll go through one at a time because uh, the university, the way we respond to biases is, is an educational in nature, right? And so it's providing education to the person who made the comment or presented a, a viewpoint or whatever that is. And so after a while, you're like, okay, how many people have we educated at this point? And people ask me like, when are you going to burn out with this kind of work? It's literally one person at a time with these bias reports, you know, and I've been doing this for about a little over two years now. And there are times when I'm like, okay, here we go. I have to have another conversation, sometimes with the same person that I've had this conversation with before. And similar to you, you have to take that step back and say, you know what? I have to change my viewpoint on it. Instead of kind of looking at it from an exhaustion perspective, I try to look at it as every one person that we educate, we're better off as an organization than we were the day before that person was educated. And so that keeps me motivated to keep going. Absolutely. And I also look at it as a privilege. Because there are so many people from marginalized groups who don't have a voice in our organizations, who don't have a platform to share their own experiences and also educate other people and don't have necessarily the power or the safe spaces to voice their opinions and their thoughts. And so it's really an honor to be in this role, to be able to be my authentic self and be paid <laughs> for sharing my experiences and educating others on diversity and inclusion. Yes, to everyone's point. And really that, you know, I think this piece around like voice, right? I think an autonomy is has been such a big shift for me, especially in this past year. And, you know, I love that you both have shared what you've shared so far, because that's really what we're trying to do with this podcast too, right? Is to highlight people's lived experiences and Yes, we can get a subject matter expert on XYZ identity, but we have staff here, right? Like we have people that we work with in our organization who also identify as such, right? Who can speak to their own lived experiences. And guess what? That experience is just as valid as the subject matter expert who has the PhD, if not even more arguably, right? In certain spaces in terms of the impact and what people can learn from hearing these experiences. And so I think the biggest shift for me really has been to remind people like you have a voice, you know, and being a part of this podcast or learning about XYZ experience from a training, it's really just to allow you to have that platform so that other people can learn from your experiences. But as we always like to say on the show, you know, everyone is an expert in their own lived experience. And so that is just as valid so as a external consultant that comes in and does a training or even us who come in to do these trainings for microaggressions, for bias, for anti-blackness, whatever it may be. And so I think that's been the biggest shift for me. And it is definitely a huge privilege. It's exhausting. I, finesse, I, I, I'm with you with the exhaustion piece and really making sure that 
when I do have those moments of exhaustion, I am taking care of myself, whatever that looks like in that moment. And at the same time, also recognizing that it is a privilege to show up authentically and to be in a position now, having done DNI work for a good number of years, to now be in a position where I'm not constantly vouching for why my position exists or why it should exist is a privilege, to it be is. quite frank. And it, and it does allow for me to authentically advocate and show up for folks in a way that I hadn't really even a year ago from now. So so kudos and yes to everything that you all said. So, you know, and just in just our conversation today, I can definitely see the passion that we all have for this kind of work, right? It comes through in the way we're talking, even though it's exhausting at times for us and that we need to take that break to take care of ourselves. It's something that we're all passionate about. So, you know, just kind of changing the gear a bit here. How do we bring this work outside of the four of us, right? Outside of the individuals that kind of have a DE&I component as part of their work. How do we bring it to the rest of our staff and faculty here? So I always think about diversity and inclusion work in sort of three layers, education, normalization, and then accountability. And I think for us DNI professionals, you kind of get all three of those concepts. We understand the importance of education, we understand the importance of socializing ideas, and we understand the importance of holding people accountable. And I think the way we kind of spread that message is starting off with conversations. And it's more than a training, although trainings are extremely effective when done well. But it's also just stepping outside of your comfort zone to just connect with the average colleague. One of the things that Jamal and I have been working on is building community across Wild Cornell. And one of the things I'm super proud of, and I know Jamal is too, is that we've established this new Staff Equity and Inclusion Council. And it's a community. It's a group of 23 staff members who are committed and have demonstrated commitment to diversity and inclusion. And they're activated in this space. They want to know, how can I talk to my colleagues about this work? And we meet monthly and we talk about things related to diversity and inclusion. And we talk about how the council, this new staff equity and inclusion council can spread the word. So it starts with reaching out, extending outside of your own personal comfort zone, just talking to people. But in this virtual space, I've found that the Staff Equity and Inclusion Council is extremely valuable because we have set meetings, we talk, and they go away with ideas that they can spread to their own departments. We have like 50 departments here at Wild Cornell. So they're representatives from across the institution. So they can go back to their own departments in a way that we can't necessarily reach the departments and talk about these topics. So that socialization, the normalization of topics around diversity and inclusion is really important. And I think our council is going to be one of the many ways that we continue to have that conversation. I would just add to that. I think Finesse summed it up beautifully. You know, even outside of the working environment, you know, in my sphere of influence, people who don't work in diversity, they look at me as like the diversity guy. So my friends will call me and they want advice. And my general advice to people is, it revolves around one question. I always think to yourself, can I see myself and the person across from me? Right? I, I think that that's a, a key thing to overcoming any struggles, right? If you can see yourself and the person across from you, then you can have empathy in what they're going through. But if you can't see yourself and the people that you interact with, 
then number one, you need to get more knowledge, right? You can't give what you don't have. So you need to get the information, get the knowledge. And it's a self-reckoning where you're always, you know, talking to yourself. Why do I think this way? Is this the right way to think? Maybe I need to get more, you know, information around this, right? So number, I think that that's super, super important. Can I see myself and the people across from me, like on a daily basis? And people who aren't in the space, they should be asking themselves that question. And then I was having another conversation with a friend of mine who happens to be white. We've been friends for like 15 years or so. And we can have honest conversations. So he told me, you know, one day he said, you know, as a white male, I've been through struggles. I've had loss and pain and so on and so forth, just like, you know, people of color. And a lot of white people and myself, we feel like we're being replaced. Like, we're, you know, we're being pushed farther back in the line. And I think when we have conversations like that, we should start with questioning people instead of giving them answers, like question them. So I said to him, I respectfully said, I get where you're coming from, right? But my question to you would be, what makes you think that you or other people who might think like you should occupy that first position, right? Because that's kind of what diversity is struggling with. That's what equity is all about, right? So having those conversations with people outside of our sphere for people who aren't in this space, I think that that will go a long way in advancing the narrative, spreading the work even outside of the workplace. I love that. I hope our listeners like re-listen to the, <laughs> what both Finesse and Jamal have shared because I, I think it's such valuable information even for people outside of Cornell who listen to the show, right, to really take away from that. And yeah, I don't, I don't think there's anything else I would add to that. Toro, would you add anything? No, I think that, no, I agree. The way I bring it outside of myself is one person at a time, which obviously is what I just explained. This is what I do. But it's always like, okay, I think like Jamal, to your point, that one-on-one conversation brings that relationship so much further than trying to kind of address some of these larger topics in a group setting. I think you can have a conversation in a group setting, but I think when you start bringing people to the other side or continuing the work that maybe you've started, I think it happens sometimes at a one-on-one level. I couldn't agree with you more, Toro. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So as we wrap up our time together, which I know we could easily talk about this forever (laughs) so as we wrap up our time together if there's anything if there's one takeaway that our listeners whether they're staff faculty at wild cornell or wild cornell medicine specifically or cornell broadly what's like a takeaway what's something that you'd want people to really remember in addition to everything that's just been shared about the importance of diversity equity and inclusion as it relates to here at cornell because as we talked about earlier, right, it's not, it doesn't just start and end with us. It requires a community, right? It requires a lot of people to carry these efforts, carry these initiatives forward in order for it to have a significant impact. I would say, and this is something that I tell myself all the time, the expectation of no problems is a setup for disappointment. So sometimes I dive into something expecting no pushback. And then when there is pushback, it can be a little bit defeating, right? So nowadays, I try to tell myself, expect pushback. Pushback is good. As you get it, you're up for the challenge to find ways to build more partnership with people, rely on your resources to get more information. I call finesse all the time when I get pushback. And I'll say, hey, I was in this meeting, and this person said this, what do you think, right? And then she'll tell me what she thinks, and I'll go back, yeah, you know, now I have something, right? So don't expect for there not to be issues, Look at those issues as challenges that you are up for, 
and then attack them, you know, with the grace and confidence. Yeah, absolutely. And if any of our staff and faculty or students are listening, I would just want them to know that the Office of Institutional Equity is here to stay. <laughs> This That's is not right. this right. is not a PR <laughs> thing after the death yeah. of George Floyd. We are yeah. doing the work. And sometimes the work is, you know, invisible, right? You may not always be out there for people to see, but you know, trust and believe that the work is happening and you don't have to do it alone. We don't have to do it alone, right? It starts with those mm-hmm. conversations. It starts with building relationships with each other to get to know what each other is doing around diversity and inclusion. But it's going to take even more than our office to get this done. It's, it's about all of us. Our entire community has to be on board with this in order to see change. I always say that one day, you know, and Anthony knows this, and I think our listeners might have heard it as well. It's like my dream would be that our offices will not be needed, right? Because to your point, Vanessa, this just becomes part of everybody's work, right? And so it just, in DE&I, it just becomes a consideration like you would consider budget or logistics or location for something. DE&I is just another consideration. And it just becomes part of everybody's work. The dream would be one day we might not have to exist because everybody will take on this responsibility. That's a great dream. And I, I, yeah. I, I share the same thoughts. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And then I wouldn't have to have to do this work, right? <laughs> none right. of us would. <laughs> yeah, right. We'd have to find other jobs. <laughs> well, none of us would have to do it because everybody else will be doing it. Yeah. Right. I look yeah. forward to the day where like diversity is considered everybody's job, not just our job. Yeah. No, that's yeah. so true. Yeah, and I look forward. <laughs> we can end on that. I look forward to the day that really diversity, equity, and inclusion is not seen as an add-on. I think a lot of people see this work as an add-on in addition to what their day-to-day looks like. But I really think, you know, a combination of what you shared, Toral, and then what you shared, Finesse, too, is like, is if we embed it into the fabric of what people do on a day-to-day basis, whether they're an executive assistant or a CEO, then that'll just make everyone's life easier, in my opinion, right? Regardless of background, regardless of lived experience, that people will be able to show up authentically as themselves, as they should. And be able to just go to work and be themselves, right? Without fear of bias or being discriminated against or so on. So that's what I hope happens in the future, in the near future. What about you, Jamal? I don't think I can add too much to that, Anthony. That was that was amazing. I mean, uh, yeah, I would love to see that day myself. I'm getting up there in age, so not in my lifetime and maybe in the, in the lifetime after. I, and I share all of you all's you know, hopes and dreams and passion for the work. So just thank you for sharing that and for letting me and Finesse be part of this. This is awesome. Yeah, thank you both for the work that you do. We'll continue to do. And we also have upcoming events, Inclusive Excellence Summit for Cornell staff and faculty. You all have Diversity Awareness Week or is it Diversity Week? Diversity Week. Diversity Week. Diversity Week coming up. And so, yeah, clearly, like Toro said, we're passionate about this work. But thank you all for joining us on the show. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Toro, this was this is a fun conversation, wasn't it? It was. It was just like talking to friends. It is definitely refreshing to hear what our fellow DEI colleagues are doing at Cornell. I feel like us doing the work that we do based in Ithaca, it can sometimes feel like it's just us doing this work, but knowing that, you know, there are other people doing this in other campuses, specifically at Wild Cornell, especially having the conversation with Jamal and Finesse, I just it was nice. It was refreshing. 
So what were your, some of your takeaways from the conversation? So there's a few things that I think we talked about. And so one of the first things that stood out to me is the concept that now is the time to affect real change in the DE&I space with what's happening in the world. It's that people are really listening and that we, you know, the individuals that do this work help to guide these actions that are taking place now. Yeah, I really love that piece. One of the big pieces that I really was surprised by and I didn't actually realize was how new the Office of Institutional Equity is at Wild Cornell. Yeah, I was really surprised and I was just really, in listening to our interview again, I was just really in awe of how much work both Jamal and Finesse have done to get that buy-in, to build that trust from the staff, faculty, students at the Wild Cornell Medicine campus. And so once again, I just really want to reemphasize the kudos to them for really leading this work over there because this work is not easy and especially to start it for such a large community, it can be really challenging. And so I really want to commend them again for all the work that they're doing. Yeah, and it's even more challenging now, like processing what's happening in our country themselves at an individual level and then trying to impact that change within a larger organization at the same time. Yeah, I found what Jamal said at the end around setting yourself up for success and making sure that you are expecting pushback. Like I thought that advice that he gave was really insightful because I've experienced so much pushback, not just in terms of DEI work broadly, but just in terms of that buy-in, right? Around like, why does this work matter? And yes, this work matters at an organizational level, but I have had some challenging conversations with people that have really said like, hey, you know, why does this matter? Or why are we prioritizing these particular topics? And so I thought that was just really insightful for me, even as somebody who has been doing this work for a while to just remember like pushback is not a bad thing. And pushback, if anything, (laughs) means that we're that much closer to creating the change that needs to be made. And I look at pushback as them questioning, right? What's happening, why it's happening, which is actually the start of all this work. So I I agree with you. I, I look at it as a good thing as well. Something else that Jamal said that stood out to me is this concept of being the only. And he mentioned that initially it used to be hard for him to be the only black person in the room, the only black male at certain meetings and things like that. And then he learned to embrace that and really said, yes, I am the only. And then I really look at that as not only am I the only, but maybe I'm the first, but there's a whole line of people behind me that are waiting to follow the work that I do. And so that really stood out to me as being the only, because that has been something that I have noticed within my life too. And so within the community that I'm a part of, this type of work is not something that anybody does, right? It's not something that people talk about. We do like physical labor type of work. We do, we own businesses and that's the type of work that we typically do. So when it comes to anything social, like construct is not something that people understand. And so even when I try to explain to people what DE&I is and what I do for a living, it's not something that people get it. They just don't get it. They don't understand it. And so it's kind of neat that like I understood what Jamal was saying because I find myself being the only in a lot of conversations within my community space. And then I say, you know what? I'm the only, but I'm here. And let me tell you what I do. Let me explain this to you. And so I'm... For Jamal, I'm learning to kind of be okay and comfortable with being the only. Yeah. And using that as a learning opportunity, right, to engage with different groups around the work that you do. Uh, One of the things that I really want to also acknowledge is Vanessa's vulnerability in talking about her as a woman of color 
how difficult it is to have these conversations. And that's something that I've definitely been thinking about too, as a queer person of color, as somebody with multiple lived experiences too, that sometimes these conversations aren't easy. And so I really appreciated just how vulnerable she was in sharing her experience around, yeah, as a black woman and as a woman of color, these conversations were challenging. They're not easy. They weren't easy. They aren't easy in general, but really prioritizing your own well-being in navigating these conversations and especially as DEI professionals is something that I've definitely honed in on a lot more in 2021 than I did in 2020. So I think that's something that I really wanted to acknowledge and appreciate just her vulnerability in the stories that she shared and sharing her own experience leading this work over there. She mentioned that it can be difficult to navigate your emotions and still show up for others. And so For a lot of us that do this work, we know how that feels. And I agree that Finesse's vulnerability, I appreciated that as well. And then something else that Finesse shared that that really stood out to me as well is this concept of how she looks at this work. And she looks at it from a three different component. It's the educational piece, the socialization piece, and then the accountability piece. And I thought that was a really great way of rounding out the work overall. Absolutely. Yeah, I did. I remember I did mention in the interview that I hope our listeners do go back to that section and re-listen to both what Finesse and Jamal shared, because that was extremely powerful for me, too. And it's definitely something I'm walking away with as a tangible tool to have when I lead trainings and other conversations across the university around DEI. And then I would say the last thing that kind of stood out to me is kind of when we talked about our hopes and dreams, right? Like in doing this work and what does that look like at the end and and what do we hope people get out of it? I thought that was just very, it was just a powerful way to end our conversation. Yes. So shout out to Jamal and Finesse for leading this work at Wild Cornell Medicine. And if folks are interested, we'll put a link in our show notes to their office, Institutional Equity, as well as a link to their Diversity Week, which is happening this week. So if you're curious to learn more about that, please check the show notes. Thank you for listening. Be sure to subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and submit a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps new listeners find us and the show. For the latest updates on diversity, equity, and inclusion at Cornell, be sure to visit diversity.cornell.edu. My name is Anthony Sis. My name is Toral Patel. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Inclusive Excellence Podcast. This podcast is a production of the Department of Inclusion and Workforce Diversity in collaboration with the Cornell Broadcast Studio. We would like to thank our co-producer and sound engineer, Bart Odom-Reed, as always, for making us sound wonderful each and every episode. Thanks, Thanks, Bert. Bert. Thanks, Bert.